This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Today on the Music Buzz podcast, I was a fly on the wall. We are proud to welcome Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member Nils Lofgren. Nils is a virtuoso rock musician, recording artist, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist whose resume is absolutely mind-blowing as he has recorded and performed with Bruce Springsteen as a member of the E Street Band since 1984 and has also served as a member of Crazy Horse, a member of Ringo Starr's All-Star Band, is the founding frontman of the band Grin, and has recorded and toured with the likes of Neil Young, Lou Reed, and others. Groups aside, Nils has a vast catalog of amazing solo work, representing over 50 years of work. Most recently, Nils has released the double album Weathered. The double live album Weathered includes reworked classics from Nils' vast catalog, new live recordings from his 2019 album Blue with Lou, a studio album that features songs co-written with Lou Reed, and a few choice cover renditions as well. Without further ado, we're proud to welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Nils Lofgren. Hey, everybody. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, Dale. That's my dog, Dale. <laughs> He's already starting. We're so happy to have you with us, uh, Nils. And uh, let me introduce our co-hosts. As always, we've got Dane Clark over there. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today, sir? Good. And also, Hugh Syme. How are you doing, Hugh? I'm very well. Thank you for asking, Andrew. Awesome. Well, Nils, it's a it's a great honor to have you on the show today. Uh, of course, I've had the pleasure of meeting and talking to you and your wife, Amy, uh, through uh, Mellencamp band brother and master guitarist Andy York quite a few times over the last 25 years. And I want to start off with a story that my oldest and dearest friend, Mark Branch, who for some reason has always been known as Emmett, reminded me of yesterday. Uh, he became a Navy SEAL after high school and was in Bermuda briefly in 1983. He said he saw you in a club with Kevin McCormick and Andy Newmark. And he said you were running up and down the speakers and doing backflips while you were playing. He said you guys were so unbelievable that he went five nights in a row. And he said to this day, it's still the best shows that he's ever seen in his life. And he's this guy's seen a lot of stuff. He goes, I don't remember the name of the record, but it had a green cover and you were sitting in a chair. It was about the same time, which which was Wonderland. Yeah. So 36 years later, that same rhythm section is playing with you again. In, in my eyes, two of the best albums that you've ever done. Blue with Lou and most recently the live record Weathered. I listened to both records at length yesterday. Man, Blue with Lou really got me. The co-writes with him are fantastic. Thank you. Dear Heartbreaker, the song Blue, uh, Blue with Lou, just fantastic. And Weathered, you got the same killer band, you know, Andy and Kevin, same raw approach on classic tunes of yours. 
like Rain from the first Grin album, which has always been one of my favorite songs of yours. Right. Um, Walking Nerve and Girl in Motion from the Silver Lining record. Uh, no Mercy from the Nils album that Ezrin produced. Of course, I Came to Dance from that record that, of the same name, 77. So what I'm telling everybody that's listening to Music Buzz today is every casual fan or hardcore Lofgren lover needs this rocking, raw, and rambunctious record weathered. Now, 65 years ago, this all started with an accordion. Can you tell us about that? Sure, Dan. Hey, thanks for the, the kind words. And, you know, I've been blessed to be at it for uh, 52 years last month on the road. So kind of an overwhelming number, but I'm happy to be here to talk about it. And uh, hey, Dale, easy, bud. And, uh, you know, when I was uh, born in the south side of Chicago, left when I was about eight and moved to the suburbs of Washington, D.C. and Maryland, but every kid on the block played accordion. And I asked my mom and dad for lessons when I was five, not realizing I had fallen in love with the study of music. And uh, they paid for almost 10 years of lessons. My uh, teachers, after the waltzes and the polkas, of course, I was still into it. So they moved me into classical music. And, you know, the early 60s with the Beatles, the Stones, British Invasion, American Counterpart, I fell in love with rock and roll. And, course having that kind of backdrop of classical musical studies was a great it was just a great musical education and, and you know sure prop to be freed by the written note and just found out how much i love to improvise play the blues of course in the mid-60s we we worshiped Jimi hendrix the beatles the stones all those people but no nobody in middle america thought you could do that for a living and as we started, you know, getting a little better and having cover bands play at the teen clubs and all that, you know, it was just a beautiful hobby. Looking back, even starting with the accordion, uh, music turned out to be a sacred weapon for me just to deal with my blues and my angst. And, you know, the, the troubles of growing up, we all go through at every age. And, you know, looking at it now with the troubled world, music really is a sacred weapon of the planet. Billions of people are turning to it every day for some healing and, and camaraderie and hope. Certainly. I'm blessed that it's been that since I was five. I thank bless my mom and dad for paying for the lessons. I, whatever talent I have, I didn't, I didn't dream it up. You know, they gave it to me with their DNA and some higher power. God's fine with me. I don't like organized religion, but found out the way I hear putting notes together surprisingly led to a career. And 52 years later, here I am. So, you know, it re really, I went to see a lot of bands all the time, but it was really uh, seeing The Who one night at Constitution Hall with Herman's Hermits and the Blues Magoos. Now, what I remember about Herman's Hermits were they were amazing. The band, the songs, I was a big fan of their radio hits. Blues Magoos, they were all right, but they had the first five members all had blinking suits. The first blinking suit. <laughs> And it was, a, you know, without the Internet, I was surprised we all knew about oh, this was going to be oh, premiered. Hold on. Blinking suits. <laughs> Can you explain that, please? So lights in the suits? I remember in the 60s, the whole Carnaby Street, British invasion kind of wardrobe with all the sure. Nehru jackets and the bell bottoms and the scars. But it's kind of sharp looking. They yeah. all have exact matching suits, which you wow. saw in a lot of British bands. But they somehow we were all informed 
that there were lights sewn in to all five suits. Wow. In a lot of lights sewn in as part of the uniform. And at some point in the show, someone was going to hit a button and all five band members were going to start blinking at us. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's fantastic. Man, talk about ahead of their time, right? No Man. kidding. This is all pre-LED. So, yeah. to- so they're all plugged in, yeah. right? Or something. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was like, I, I can't let that yeah. pass. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's classic, man. Interrupt the way I ramble. So were uh, they good though? Were they good players? The blues, the goose? They were okay and good. Yeah. Permits were great. And the who was spectacular. So was this about 67 or so? Probably 67. And then we all, this was constitution hall in Washington, DC. Then we all rushed over to the ambassador theater which was our imitation Fillmore east and west with the big blinking light shows and the amoebas but on a giant movie screen behind the bands and Jimi Hendrix experience was on his first tour and none of us knew what to expect Pete Townsend came over was in the audience and Jimmy came out blew everybody's mind and that night walking out of the ambassador theater for the first time since I picked up an accordion or a guitar in particular just a couple years prior, uh, I was possessed with the idea that maybe I needed to try to be a professional rock musician. It had never occurred to me until that night after those shows. And wow. here I am 52 years later. That's great. Uh, and you survived the backflips, which is. Yeah. Now tell but- us a little bit about that, man. Do you remember that club in Bermuda that I was talking about? Do you remember when you guys did those, that's, that run of shows there 40 thieves in hamilton bermuda uh, okay you have an album cover with you airborne and i looked at that today having seen it for the first time today and i thought that's pretty impressive e- even if it is a little bit um uh, improbable <laughs> and, and turns out that was really you doing that you know what happened was I, w- I got into gymnastics in junior high school in the 60s strangely uh, women's gymnastics really took hold Men's gymnastics had this strange, oh, they considered it a sissy sport for some reason, which is insane. But uh, it wasn't a real popular sport. I played a lot of basketball. I played a lot of football. But what happened was, fast forward to the flip story, uh, Grin was on the road opening for everyone under the sun. There's no video. So there was tour support where they'd help you tour and open for people at a loss and they would pitch in a bit to make it work. I mean, you would, you'd get paid very little, but you would tour and open act for everyone. And that was your promotion and they would charge it to your royalties. And uh, we were opening for all these great bands from Britain, America, uh, Edgar Winters, White Trash. Oh yeah. But we're going to open for everyone. And Jay Giles band in particular was so great. Peter Wolf still sits in with these three bands, but they had this incredible show Peter was dancing around like crazy. And I was sitting there briefly knowing I would get animated soon. I wasn't. I was eyes closed, focusing on singing and playing. In general, as an opening act, you get booed a lot. People would yell for the headliner and not pay a lot of attention to you. Uh, I thought to myself, what can I do visually? Grin was good. We played good music, we felt. And I thought, what can I do? I came up with this crazy idea. Uh, and I, I went down to um, my old friend Vern Elder, who used to run these gymnastic camps I'd go to as a young teenager, and said, look, Vern, at the YMCA, 
down in Washington, D.C. He said, look, Vern, I know it's going to sound crazy, but I want to learn how to do a backflip off a mini tramp, a little trampoline angled at you with a takeoff mat while I play the guitar. And he looked at me funny, but I said, look, I told him the reason. Uh, I wanted to do something visual. Now, when you do a backflip, of course, a lot of upper body where you violently throw your arms up in the air to get some spin. When you're holding anything, including a guitar, it removes the upper body from the stunt completely. But Vern, being a gymnastic coach in the Olympics, women's coach for the Olympics, said, can you figure this out and help me learn this? So he put me in the ceiling belt. So, you know, if you're going to break your neck, he just grapples you and you get suspended in the air. Got the mini tramp out. And he started teaching me how to do the stunt without my upper body while I held a guitar. And we did it in the ceiling belt. Then he did with a belt around your waist for a while, spotting me. And then finally just hand spotted me till I could actually do it on my own. How long did that take? That took a long, long afternoon at the YMCA. And there were mats everywhere. And I went airborne and I would have broken my neck for sure. But that's the whole point of a, a dangerous gymnastics stunt is you get into a ceiling belt with a professional. And they know immediately. They, they just... They just literally go off the floor and his weight was greater than mine. So all of a sudden, as I'm heading down to break my neck, he'll, he'll go sit on the ground and all of a sudden I'm suspended. He'll lower me, tell me what I did wrong, and we'll try it again. Once you get the hang of it, he'll put a belt around you and a belt inside that and just spot you manually. Like if you're not going to make it over and land on your head, they'll throw you over. So you land on a, a big mat. If, you know, you get bruised a little bit, but you don't break your neck. So anyway, it was a long, long afternoon. And uh, he taught me how to do a backflip while I played guitar. Did you have a trampoline on stage or did you do it just? No. no. Well, what, what happened was, uh, it's another funny story. So we get the mini tramp. I bought one. Right. The band knew I was going to try this. And uh, usually what we did when we were headlining later, sometimes we'd be the headline act. At the end of the set, I'd put the guitar down and go a big layout backflip. It was very dramatic without the guitar. Bang, show's over. We walk out, we get an encore. Hopefully we come back out and then at the end of the night, I'll do it with the guitar. <laughs> when, you're, when you're on opening act, there's no encore. So uh, when we were playing with Jay Giles, we were in Tampa, Florida. We were playing for about 3,000 crazy drunken college kids there to see Jay Giles. We went out, the promoter said, you know, I book Florida. If you play one second over 30 minutes, you'll never work in Florida again. And we're like, relax, dude, I got to watch. We'll play 30 minutes. We're professional. And we went out and did our 30 minute grin set, still kind of, you know, inhibited, singing and playing well. And um, the crowd was booing us, yelling for Jay Giles and throwing bottles at us. Oh, nice. So 30 minutes later, we look, I look at the time, say time to wrap it up. We do our last song. At the end of it, I turn back. It was back by my amp, you know, so I put like an angle. So it's kind of a side shot, visual, 45 degree angle from the audience. I go take a big run, jump up in the air, land on this trampoline, and I do this backflip while I'm playing guitar back towards the crowd. When I hit the ground, the band ends and we rush off stage we go downstairs into our little cubicle and you know we're just like hey we did a good job it was kind of weird getting bottles thrown at it the promoter comes running into the room in a panic says you must go out now get upstairs you have to do an encore what are you talking about they were throwing bottles at us they booed us 
said, yeah, but that backflip drove them crazy. <laughs> but when I, when I got off stage, we looked at each other and laughed and said, welcome to show business. I mean, it was, it was crazy. I, back then, of course, I mean, look, when I dropped out of my senior year of high school and ran away to Greenwich Village, and it wasn't because I had a great mom and dad that supported me, but back then, you know, I mean, there was none of like when you get out of high school. Even even a lot of some of my friends that were wealth well-to-do parents. My parents were middle class. You know, you didn't think that. Well, you know, maybe till I'm thirty or so, because growing up so hard, mom and dad will pay for the house, the utilities, the cell phone, the iPad, the mainframe computer, uh, get me a car because it's so hard growing up. We just figured well, out of high school. You had to figure it out. Got a few buddies. You split the rent on a cheap place, and you started getting out with your life. So, yeah, yeah. These were also days when I told you I, I left school. You know, I, I hitchhiked to National Airport, and back then there were shuttles. They call them every hour on the hour from Washington D.C. National Airport to New York, LaGuardia, and you didn't even need an ID. You just walked on the plane. Fifteen bucks. Either way, shuttles hour on the hour from 7 a.m. to 11 at night. I went up to New York, subway to the Greenwich Village, opened up the yellow pages, started taking the subway to addresses of record companies and asking for work as I lived in the street and started my, you know, the beginning of my professional career. But it was, it was a more, um, I don't want to say innocent time. But it was a simpler time in show business in the respect that there was really nothing going on except learning how to play in front of people. And that served me very well. And, of course, a lot of the bands we've mentioned that I've played with, that was kind of the last generation of that, where there was no game in town. Even if you were just local playing at the teen clubs, that was the deal, learning how to play in front of people. I did fall in love with it, and it has become the most favorite part of what I do. Thus, you know, the most recent live album, Weathered, was a joy for me because I hadn't toured with an electric band in well over 15 years. I regularly have been touring acoustic. But anyway, it's been a great ride. And of course, the 60s was a great time to be a teenager. Mm -hmm. Mm, Sure. That in particular was an explosion of of great music, of course. I have to ask, have you ever heard of Walter Ostinac? Walter Ostinac? No. It's a very, very obtuse question, but he happens to be one of the... um, he has the privilege of having won Grammys for being an accordion player, probably more than any, anybody else. And it turns out that he is the fellow from whom I would rent columns and drum sets from when I was 16, when we would all play in the basement on borrowed equipment or rented equipment. But Walter had his own music store, but bless his heart, he always won a, a Grammy <laughs> for being an accordion player. That is beautiful, man. You know, I, of course, got to resurrect the accordion a bit through the years playing with Neil Young. Yeah, sure. Ringo Starr's all-star band. The first one we had, um, I mean, it was even Ringo would admit it was the greatest cast of talented characters ever. And uh, we had Rick Danko, Levon Helm from the band, Billy Preston, me and Joe Walsh. But as we, as we were doing that tour, the first tour in 89, and then Clarence Clemens was in the band. Jim Keltner was our full-time drummer. It was just insane. Wow. Nice. Rick Danko, uh, after a while, we'd do songs from the band, doing the weight every night, blew my mind, and playing with Levon and all those characters. But Rick said, hey, let's do a, um, Raining in My Heart. Beautiful old soulful ballad. And I said, hey, Rick, I'd like to play accordion. And I played it. He was happy with it. And it was really just a, a joy. You know, God bless 
Ringo and, and the Beatles, they have the greatest body of recorded music in history. That's how I discovered rock and roll was through them. Everybody, Little Richard, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Motown, Saxophone. I discovered all of it through the Beatles and Stones, really, in the British invasion. I still remember, I got to go on YouTube now that I'm saying it, playing that accordion with Rick Danko singing Raining in My Heart and that beautiful band of characters. It was I've been blessed. Is it on YouTube? I don't know, but I'm going to find out when we're done. <laughs> you, you mentioned accordion. I mean, Garth used to play accordion quite a bit, too, with the band. He still is. He sat in with us a few times, played accordion. Yeah. Really, really great. So I got a Ringo story. I, I think I read this right. You were doing the Silver Lining record, and Ringo was, was hanging out while you guys were cutting a track. And uh, something about what I would call uh, less is more with music. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. You know, um, back on that tour, I had a, there's another song on the weathered album. The two songs, the song you're talking about is called girl in motion. Yes. That story. There's another song I wrote basically about the struggles of growing up, age old struggles. And the song's called walking nerve. It's on the live weathered album too, but walking nerve I hadn't written the lyric and I had the, uh, it's kind of based on the blues and I had the riff. I had the blues riff and I used to play it a lot at the sound check. And, you know, Ringo would start doing this shuffle and with the shuffle, he'd still do the backbeat with one arm and he'd do the whole shuffle with the other hand. Yeah. It's kind of like what he, what he did on get back. Yes. Yes. That's I remember seeing that going, that's wild looking. But anyway, so I'd be playing that. Ringo would be doing the shuffle beat, and then Billy Preston would walk out and say, this is sound checks now, just casual. And he'd start playing organ. It was a jam, and he, and then Billy Preston started singing, you know, my love won't give me presents. Nice. Yeah, cool. Singing a Beatles song to the riff, and there's Ringo, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is crazy. But I wrote the song. <laughs> And Richie, Ringo, who played that beat so great, I said, hey, would you come to the studio and let Kevin McCormick, our bass player and producer, and me and you just play live in the room? That groove we did on tour, I wrote a song called Walking Herb. said, yes. And we did record that. It's on this, one of my favorite tracks on Silver Lining. However, he came a few hours early to hang out with us. He was living in L.A. at this point. And we were recording Girl in Motion we tried to go for live vocals, so it was just the power trio. It's like we recorded Blue with Lou, Wonderland, me, Andy, and Kevin. We got a really good take. It felt great. We went in to listen to it. And, of course, you know, you know, Dane, you, you, you hear something and you're always thinking, especially if you're the artist or the singer, the musician, rather, and the producer, all right, well, that might be our track, and you start thinking about what to add. Of course. And all of a sudden, Ringo, who's just sitting there quietly on a side chair, pipes in and says, well, fellas, you're done. And um, Kevin and I looked at him and said, what do you mean? He said, well, that was beautiful. That was, that's a record. You're not going to mess it up by adding stuff, right? You're done. Right. <laughs> kind of, it was kind of like a suggestion in an order. Like, <laughs> you're done. Don't screw it up. <laughs> right. There's nobody except maybe somebody like Ringo that has the stature and the experience and the body of work where Kevin and I would have taken it so seriously, we looked at each other and went, we're done. 
So I've got a question for you, Neil. So I've always been a, a big fan of Neil Young, and I had uh, just my Apple Music playing. This has been, I don't know, I think in like two or three months ago. And it was in the summertime. I had it playing. I was grilling out or something, and Birds came on, kind of just in the background. And it, I love that song, one of my favorite Neil Young songs of all time. But it wasn't Neil. And I'm, and I kind of, it caught my ear, but I'm busy grilling. I'm like, wait, who? And I went over to my phone and looked. I'm like, it's you. And I'd heard that record that you'd done where you're covering Neil's songs. But that version I hadn't heard in years because it's been over at least 10 years since you did that record, I believe, or or longer. Um, And it made me think about that song when I found out we were going to talk to you. Can you talk to us about that song, maybe the original recording of it when you guys worked on it, and then also you bringing it back to life on that record you did back, uh, you know, uh, several years ago? Sure. Um, the original after the Gold Rush album, um, of course, I, at 17, my band Grin, we went out to L.A. looking for a record deal. I was in the habit of asking for advice, sneaking backstage. I walked in on Neil and Crazy Horse. Neil let me play some songs for him, hang out with him for a couple of days. And true to his word, you know, he said, look me up when you get to L.A. I did. And he and David Briggs, his producer, took us under my band Grin under their wing. I moved in with David and was living with him. So I saw Neil a lot. He was very supportive. Those are the two greatest mentors I ever had, Neil Young and David Briggs. And tragically, we lost David in the 90s. But this you're talking late 60s now. So about a year in, as Grin's finding our way, we play it with the Topanga Canyon Corral house band. I was living in Topanga Canyon with David Briggs. David warned me, said, hey, uh, Neil's going to call you about a project. And Neil called and said, look, we're doing this after the Gold Rush album, and I want you to play guitar and sing and play piano. And I was so honored. But at this point, there was a familiarity and a friendship. So I felt I needed to be honest, of course, and say, Neil, you know, I'm not a professional piano player. And he said, and then David got involved and said, well, look, you've been talking about accordion. We hear you play accordion. <clears throat> you've won contests. And we just need some very simple parts. And based on your sense of rhythm and melody, we think you can handle it. And at that point, coming from Neil Young and David Briggs, thank God, I realized just shut up and say yes, thank you, which I did. Uh, It turned out to be an extraordinary experience and one of, I think, one of my favorite albums. And uh, we, again, live in the studio. I never left the piano. I practiced constantly, but it worked out. Now, the title track after the Gold Rush and Birds, that was Neil on his own, sitting and playing live. And uh, years later, um, somebody proffered the idea of doing a cover, cover album of Neil Young's songs. And I went, no, Neil's done all that. He does acoustic songs a lot. But I started thinking about it. And I thought, well, maybe I should just look at this. So I put together a list of about 30 or 40 of my favorite Neil Young songs. And not committed at all to the idea. I'd get up, get a big cup of strong coffee, come to the living room, and, you know, we had four dogs and two cats. And I would just sing this list of songs and just sing them and find what keys. And, and you know, for about three weeks, they all sounded like karaoke to me. But nonetheless, it was about a few weeks in, just giving this idea some, some rope. Uh, some of the songs started feeling a little more special for my voice. And anyway, I eventually got to the point where there was a batch of them, not dictated by my favorites, really, 
but dictated by which one stops sounding like karaoke. It started sounding more special. I got to say that um, and I appreciate your, your karaoke reference because that you managed to do on that record and, and specifically birds, just because it's my personal favorite in a lot of ways of, of Neil's. I mean, it says a lot when somebody can pull off a song and make it their own, especially a song like that. And you definitely did it. And so, you know, thank you for doing it the right way. <laughs> One of these uh, shows, I think it was Winnipeg. It was the polar vortex where the whole Midwest was, you know, like 20 below, five feet of snow, dangerous. We were in South Dakota, Billy and Ralphie, bass player and drummer, and I, without Neil, because Neil doesn't like to rehearse that much, understandably, he knows his songs. And we played for about five days in this terrible, frigid South Dakota winter. Then we got on a bus for 13 hours, drove north to Winnipeg and uh, to do these shows. So at one of the sound checks, you know, I like to get there a few hours ahead of the band or at least an hour or two just to ease into the adrenaline and have time to myself and my pedals, my text, just the, the scene. And I sat down uh, at the after the gold rush Piano. Neil brings it around the road wherever he goes, and I've used it at the Bridge School Benefits, which I've done many of. And of course, you know, I have to say, sitting down at this same upright piano I played Southern Man on, and, and you know, only love can break your heart, and don't let it bring you down. You know, 50 years later, sitting there at a live gig on a stage, Crazy Horse, it's just very, this beautiful, spooky feeling. Yes. Yeah, yeah, man. So anyway, I one day I started, you know, the sound man said, hey, Neil, sing and play a little bit. Dial into the sound for the... And I played that version of Birds. And I didn't know it, but Neil and Elliot were in the back. I just got off the bus and they'd come in and they just sat in the dark behind me and let me do it. And then they mm. walked out and um, just gave me a nod. But anyway... So you, That's play, great. you played piano on Southern Men. Yeah. Wow, beautiful part. Yeah. Classic part. We were at Neil's home in Topanga Hills with a remote truck. Beautiful patio up top. They'd go out, look at the hills, have lunch. I would never leave the piano because I was nervous about my first sessions. Mm -hmm. and job. So I would just practice, usually alone. This particular day, we were working up Southern Man. We hadn't had it down yet. They took a lunch break. And Ralphie, the drummer, who's a dear friend, I stay in touch with Ralphie and Billy all these decades. Ralphie stayed behind, and we were just jamming. But we did that for about 20, 30 minutes. Felt great. But then you realize, you know, I'm, I'm only 18. I'm just fresh off of 10 years of accordion study. And that whole, you know, poke up and pop and pop and pop and pop rained <laughs> in me. So I decided to change it up. So I started started doing the octave thing in the left hand of the piano. And as soon as Ralphie heard that, he started double timing the snare. And we came up, you know, bum 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 but with a double time backbeat. And we got into a raging jam and it felt really good. And when Neil and David came back from lunch, they were like, What the hell's that? And I said, Well, that's Southern Man with a polka beat. Well, that feels great, but don't ever say that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> However, it did feel good. And Neil said, look, why don't we, we, next time we go through Southern Man, when we get to the solo, Ralphie just kick into that groove. Neil, I mean, Nils, Nils you go to that groove with, and we'll change it up. And then break back down to halftime for the last verse. Then at the end of the song, once Neil starts taking lead guitar out, 
let's kick back into the double time. And we did yep. it and it worked. So it was great that my old, you know, square accordion study days led to a significant arrangement change in such a powerful tune. That's a great story, man. Tell me a little bit about your experiences with Mark Knopfler in Dire Straits. I'm curious to hear. I've been listening to his uh, privateering album for the last few years. It's it's a very generous offering of music. I think there's like 24 songs on the album, and it's a great album. But I'm a big fan of his, and I'm curious to know how you found that experience. Yeah, you know, I always loved Dire Straits, Mark in particular, but the whole band. And Mark's one of my favorite guitar players. Uh, and the Born in the USA tour at our height, we were at Wembley Stadium. I think we were doing at least two or three nights. Of course, there would be a night off here and there. We were in London, based there. And Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits was doing like something crazy, like 12 or 13 nights at the Wembley um, Arena, all sold out. So at this point, you know, I'm young. I'm just in the fresh in the E Street Band. I'm out of my mind happy. On nights off, I would always go out, religiously go out and seek out bands and nightclubs just to hear live music. More than not, I'd get up and jam. So I asked somebody to arrange for me to go see Dire Straits and I went over and I'm sitting there uh, early on in the day and, and Mark comes over and, you know, we say hello, tell him what a big fan and I'm just there to enjoy the night, have a night off from E Street. And he said, hey, you want to come out later and play with us? And, of course, I was like, oh, I'd love to. And we picked a song where the it was blues-based. You know, I, I was familiar with it a bit. I didn't really know it that well, but enough to, hey, let me know what key it's in. And if I don't know what I'm doing, I'll shut up and try to just play musical stuff when I feel something. So I wound up going up to jam with him, and I went back again another night. And uh, he was just so, you know, so kind and giving and just, you know, like, yeah, I mean, there'd be nights where I'd be at the side of the stage watching the band. He'd be doing this beautiful guitar. The band would drop down. And then he'd just start walking off stage. And he'd leave the stage. He'd walk up to the monitor console, just stand next to me with a cigarette, and watch his band play. (laughs) Mm, How you doing? Like, (laughs) Because, you know, I'm sitting there with him. He's not playing. He's not singing. But what the band's doing is brilliant. I had a question from the graphic standpoint. I mean, I've reviewed your albums today and I I did see a little bit of inclination on your part to delve into the conceptual, like the fat man, the circus man on the one cover, which is a beautiful cover, by the way. Um, And the old school truck, you know, those were more conceptual. But for the most part, you seem to be all about the music and just be apart from backflips and uh um, and, and that lovely stylistic green shaft of light on the Wonderland cover. Um, how much did you get involved in or how much did you care about all of that while you're so busy just wanting to be the musician that you are, the brilliant musician that you are? Thanks, man. You know, I don't get, I mean, it's just, I want to be involved in the sense that I feel good about the covers. A lot of times in the last 25 years, Amy, who's got great taste, much better than mine, and uh, she kind of oversees that. Uh, she picked the Tom Zimney picture when we were making the East Street Band record, Letter to You. Tom Zimney's a dear friend. He sent me some pics. I hadn't even committed to making a live record yet, but Amy picked that pick. Right. And uh, a lot of the other records recently, the Blue with Lou pick by a great photographer, Christine Aragoni. But back in the old days, for instance, the Fat Man, a- um, A&M Records, 
I'm making my first solo album with David Briggs. They would say, look, we've hired Ed Kareth at the time. I know Ed, yeah, yeah. One of the great photographers of the time. I knew it, yeah. yeah. Got a, a 10 a.m. photo shoot at his home in a couple of days. And your job is to work with that and get a cover for your first solo record. So 10 a.m. is a little early for me at the time. I was a real night owl, heavy drinker at the time. And uh, photo shoots are not my cup of tea. I'm not that deep into it other than I want to like it. Yeah. I put on the wardrobe I had, and I grabbed a bottle of Grand Marnier. Mm-hmm. So Ed answers the door in Laurel Canyon about 10 in the morning. I, he opens up the door. I'm sitting there with this bottle of Grand Marnier in that outfit. Hi, Ed. Hi, Nils. We're going to spend the day together. I said, come on in. And we sit down briefly, but he's kind of looking at me almost agitated. And, you know, we're talking. And he said, man, that, that, those colors you're wearing, it just can you come out back with me? And, you know, he just, he, would, he was agitated, not in a bad way, but in a creative way based on <laughs> yeah. what he was wearing. So I pick up my bottle, I go out back, and in his backyard, he has this pristine antique uh, carnival poster from, I don't know, the 20s, 30s, this giant, at the time, Tiny Cowan, who was the heaviest man on earth. <laughs> and he said, look at the colors in that compared to what you're wearing. They're the same color scheme. And I'm like, well, yeah, they are. I said, please stand in front of it. So I stand in front of it, takes a couple of quick shots. Look, look. And we looked at it and it wasn't the cover, but we realized, hey, that could be the cover right there. We went past that. So I kept sipping the Graminier stand in front of that poster. And of course we took Tiny Cowan, you know, world's largest man uh, out and used the exact same font for Nils Lofgren. And that, this was a kismet, lucky take on it. I think it served you well to be so real and so accessible and so about you, the musician. As a, I think the circus man is fantastic, and I think the, the truck is great, the old school truck. But you know, just meeting you today and talking to you, I think it really serves you well to just you know, you know, kind of screw art, let's dance, because it, it is about the music when we think of Nils Lofgren. So I got a quick question. Watching football with Lou Reed. Can you tell us something about that? It was a hilarious moment. Um, Bob Ezrin, try to keep it from rambling, in the uh, Nils album, we had a lot of songs we liked, like No Mercy. We had a lot of music we liked. We didn't like the lyrics. I agree with him. My lyrics are subpar. I'll rewrite them. I'll rewrite them. Finally, Bob said, well, look, you got enough on your plate. We're making an album. Why don't we, would you consider a co-writer? I said, well, I don't do that much. Depends on who it is. He said, how about Lou Reed? I said, I love Lou Reed. I mean, I didn't think, how the hell are you going to make that happen? Well, he produced the Berlin album. Lou seemed open to it. I said, Nils, meet me in my apartment next week. Let's talk this through. Uh, so next week I go down, I think it was Greenwich Village. Now this was, I don't know, it might have been, must have been Monday night football. It was a night game. I don't think there was Thursday night football in the late 70s. And I already, because I'm a giant football fan, the Washington Redskins, which, by the way, I'm thrilled they're changing their name. It's decades overdue. But big fan, we're playing our hated rival, Dallas Cowboys. Huge game if you're a Washington fan. Already, I dismissed it and accepted, you will not watch this game. You're going to talk about the possibility of co-writing with Lou Reed one of the great lyricists ever. So the game's gone, get over it. You're not going to see your, your team <laughs> play. Knock on the door, walk in. Lou, you know, I spent 20 minutes, a of, 20 minutes with him at a studio a few days earlier. So there was some familiarity and we were going to talk through the idea. Poured me a hard drink. 
which I loved. I was still sipping hard liquor at the time, gratefully. And he said, hey, Nils, I got a favor, man. Um, do you have any plans later tonight? I said, no, man, this is the plan to talk to you and hope we can work something out. Um, he said, well, look, I'm a giant NFL fan. My favorite team, the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Would you mind watching the game? And we could kind of, you know, talk through the game, but afterwards get into, you know, writing and just enjoy the game because I really was counting on it. And I laughed and I told him my story. I said, Lou, I, I was hoping to see the game. I'd already dismissed it. That's great, great news. So we spent I don't even remember who won, which is a testament of how excited I was about riding with Lou. Watched the three-hour game, uh, rooted for our teams, sipped some liquor, and into the night we discussed riding. And Lou uh, said, look, uh, rather than get a loft and a piano and a couple guitars and go at it six, eight hours a day, you've got all this music you say you've written that you like. Why don't you start by sending me a tape and we'll go from there. Sent him a cassette, went back to Maryland. I was going from Maryland to New York to do pre-production with Bob Eshin. So I put together 12 or 13 songs. I think it was 12 on this cassette, which was the high-end tape of the day. You know, not everyone had reel-to-reel machines in their home. And a few weeks went by, and I figured Lou wasn't interested. I forgot about it and kept out my work with Bob Eshin, getting ready to make this record. And Lou woke me up 4.30 in the morning on the landline. Again, late 70s, no cell phones, no internet. And uh, said, Nils, it's Lou Reed. And that woke me up, of course, in the pitch black. Said, hey, Lou. And said, look, I'm calling you now because I've been up for three days and nights straight. Haven't slept. I love the cassette. (laughs) I love every song. I've been deep into it, working on lyrics. I've just finished 12 finished sets of lyrics. And I'm excited about it. I think they're great. And if you like, I'll dictate them to you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that woke me up. I said, wow, Lou, that you're blowing my mind. Give me, let me put on a pot of coffee, get a pad and pencil. And I spent the next two and a half hours meticulously dictating Lou Reed, dictating 12 finished lyrics. Wow. And uh, I still remember at the end laugh. I said, so Lou, you woke me up at 4.30 in the morning to, to inform me I'd just written 12 songs with the great Lou Reed. Right. And he laughs and yeah, that's what I did. (laughs) (laughs) He used three songs right away for the bells. He said, run it by Bob Ezra. These three songs I want to use. I used three songs for the Nils album. Uh, Years later, I did a a beautiful haunting lyric life on damaged goods record. Branford Marsalis played this beautiful haunted sax. And then years later I did uh, on the crooked line album, drifting man. And uh, I always thought the songs left behind that Lou and I would address someday. I'd go see him play, talk to him about it. Say, yeah, someday we got to get those songs out of the basement. And then, of course, tragically, we lost Lou. And I made a point that whenever it was I made another record, I was going to get those songs no one had ever heard recorded. And thus, the Blue with Lou album with their six songs we wrote together. The City Lights song, um, I still remember on that, min- that 4.30 a.m. phone call that Lou said, by the way, um, when we were at Lou's home and he decided I'm going to send him a cassette, I said, Lou, we're not, we're, we're planning on replacing all these lyrics. So do you want me to just la-di-da or hum the melody? I said, no, I understand you don't like any of the words, but give me everything you have, titles, everything you've done, incomplete, please send them as they are works in progress. Don't edit anything. Mm. So I did. 
So on the phone call, he said, look, your song City Lights, I love the chorus. I'm keeping the chorus. But instead of some silly party song I wrote, he said, I've written a story about Charlie Chaplin. And the light bulb went off, City Lights, the movie. Right. Mm. Even think of that. And because, but Lou's so involved in all the arts and their healing powers. And he wrote this brilliant song about Charlie Chaplin. So I, he narrated it on the Bells album in a beautiful narrative style only Lou has. Mm-hmm. And someday we recorded with the original melody, which I did on Blue with Lou, the recent studio record I made. And of course, I asked Branford Marsalis to play some brilliant sax and, you know, kind of illustrate that story about Charlie Chaplin. I just had no desire to try to do it with a guitar i I just didn't know where to start i didn't want to start so i thought well let me you know let me pass the buck to my friend bradford barcellus if he'll let me and he was gracious about it and put on a brilliant sax very brilliant uh and moving song uh your version especially thanks yeah you know it's it's much like we're going through now you know mankind we're we keep shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, there's all these beautiful, beautiful solutions and art and, and acts of kindness by people with nothing. Then you got all these greedy, malignant, crazy people that are so drunk with power, they have to build their 20th palace. And, you know, 90% of the population has to be in poverty. I mean, it's just madness. But that's where we're in. And Lou's song really hit me because it's like, You've got this guy, Charlie Chaplin, who comes after the Depression and the whole country's depressed and struggling, and he makes us laugh and he gives us hope. It's, it's just a human struggle we're all still wrestling with. <laughs> but that's the Lou Reed story, and God bless Lou. I, I felt like when I was working on the album, I took a long time to learn how to play and sing everything live. And again, Andy and Kevin, we didn't even record for seven or eight days. We learned 20 songs six of them, the Lou Reed songs, to where we could play a power trio looking at each other, no baffles, leakage mm-hmm. and all, in the room, play live. So if we were excited, we might play a song over and over, but we'd done that arrangement work. And if a song bogged down, we looked at the list of 20 songs, picked another one, and went to that. So we could keep staying in an excited, we're in a band now mode. And rather than add a lot of guitars or synths, there was none of that. I added Cindy Mizell, dear friend, incredible singer, who I'd done hundreds of shows with, with Bruce and the East Street Band, and became a dear friend with my wife Amy and I through those adventures. And uh, I got a men's choir locally to add some touches, much like the old Jordan Air. It's just very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Very cool. And I let that be the touches to leave the power trio alone. And it's a heck of a power trio, too. Thanks, That's man. for sure, yeah, man. And dear old brothers, and get, getting them out on the road for weather with my brother Tommy who my you know favorite swing man to ever play with going all the way back to the grin days and um and then cindy getting the people that made the record out there right. uh, it was a joy and <clears throat> i hadn't planned on recording i said no i don't want to record i want to go from town to town jam our faces off have it be a snapshot only for the people in the room and just before we left my wife amy implored me and our sound man matt Bittman, look just record them, please. Would you just do that for me? So we did. And it wasn't until months after listening to some rough mixes Matt Bittman made that I realized there was really a vibe going on with this band that warranted sharing it. And the band is smoking on Weathered, man. It's fantastic. There's telepathy going on there for sure. It was a big, big laugh for me to to put out a 16 minute version of I Came to Dance. (laughs) That rocks. It does. And you know, one of the things, Dan, I hadn't done in 
15, 17 years. When you're an acoustic performer, you know, you can't stop singing and playing and just shuffle around. You know, you're, you're, you're driving the band. You're the rhythm section. You're everything. Right. So I embraced uh, being in a band and being able to, like, uh, and I told Cindy, like, Cindy, past singing great, scat. If you feel something, just sing it. Don't talk to me about it on the bus. Just do it right on the spot. And we got a great moment where she was another instrument. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's one song, Too Many Miles, where after the last bridge, we dropped out into a quiet, moody verse, and all of a sudden, Cindy just starts riffing around me. And it's beautiful, and it's just totally spontaneous. And you just don't get that in the studio. And um, Yeah, you can't plan that kind of stuff. No, and it wasn't planned, and it was brilliant. And even the beginning, you know, I was listening to that take, and at first I thought, geez, Nils, the song starts, you wait a while to play, then you play one lick, and you don't even play anymore. And I'm like, and of course, you know, the producer is like, well, what's wrong with that? There must be something wrong. But then I kept listening, and this, the track had such a vibe, and I said, wait a minute. Think about it. You were so happy with the groove that after you played a lick, you didn't have to play. And here you hear me clap my hands, just shuffling around. Something I'd never get to do in an acoustic show. Right. And case in point, when it came to I came to dance near the end of the night, a lot of times, not that I was sick of hearing myself play, but I've been playing all night. And I thought, you know what, Andy, Kevin, entertain us. I'm going to go visit my brother and have a cup of coffee. And I'd walk over to the keyboard ring on the side. And, you know, they look at me and I'm like, I don't care what you do. You're Andy Newmark. Just play. <laughs> and they did. They sure did. We, and then, you know, it was, I started doing that regularly just because they're so great. And every night was different. And then one night, Kevin started walking into that. Papa was a Rolling Stone bass groove. And I walked back out, started jamming, started singing the chorus. And that led to the. You know, the 16-minute version you see on the right. It's a fantastic record, man. Congratulations on Weathered, Nils, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for all the great stories. Yeah, wish you nothing but the best, and, um, you know, keep on turning out the music, because we'll be listening, that's for sure. Thanks, man. Andy, Hugh, Dane, it's been good chatting with you. Uh, thanks for spreading the word on weather and the stuff I do, and God bless you all. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Same to you, Nils. Take care, Nils. Bye. you deserve Wouldn't it be nice Keep the rage off my tongue What I wouldn't give Lose your terror in my heart But I've been too many miles Down this road Show me respect My life's been a history Of abuse and neglect Sad to think of misery Only friend I have left But I've 